Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 271 and my conversation with Provincetown, Massachusetts-based percussionist, marimbist, vocalist, and innkeeper, Brian Calhoun. We'll check back in with Brian shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou. We found out during Bull Bid Sunday that Mizzou is going to be traveling to Fort Worth, Texas to take on Army in the Armed Forces Bowl on December 22nd. While it's highly unusual to be in the SEC and going to a bowl prior to Christmas Day, well, when your squad goes 6-6, six and six, you're at the mercy of the bowl deciders. I'm thrilled for the Marching Mizzou students because, one, this is our first bowl game since 2018, so many of the group have never been to a bowl, and two, we'll be completely done with our bowl obligation prior to both New Year's and Christmas, which allows the students to be with their loved ones for the entirety of that break time. And here's hoping the Dallas-Fort Worth area is warm. Next up, Pete the Performer. This past week was busier on the performance front than usual for me, but I was glad to have that opportunity to do some ensemble playing with so many different groups. On Monday, November 29th, I was one of the percussionists to perform on Mizzou's Holiday Brass Concert. Those performances included some glockenspiel, snare and bass, drum set, and a lot, and I mean a lot, of suspended cymbal rolls during We Wish You a Merry Christmas. It involved all of the brass areas and their professors, and everyone played well, and it was a lot of fun. On Friday, December 3rd, I got to return to my former employer, the Lincoln University of Missouri, to perform in their Christmas choir concert. It was great to be back, getting to see old friends and colleagues and chatting with some former students. On Saturday, December 4th, I got the opportunity to be one of the percussionists for the MU Concert Chorale Concert, directed by my colleagues, Dr. Brandon Boyd, who directs the Men's Glee Club, and Emily Edgington Andrews, who directs the Treble Choir. That was a lot of fun also, with so much great music, and playing in a packed, and I mean packed, and excited house. It was an extraordinary environment and a good reminder that there is a lot of great music being played and performed by faculty and students throughout the School of Music. And it was also great to see a lot of my students that I teach in performance. It was all in all a wonderful experience. And then to conclude, on Sunday, December 5th, I played, as I typically do, as their principal timpanist and occasional percussionist for the Marshall Philharmonic Christmas concert. This is always fun. And the percussion section, along with myself, most importantly, nailed the horse hooves and the whip cracks for Sleigh Ride. Gotta do Sleigh Ride. All right, that's, that's enough. That's enough. Let's move along to Brian Calhoun. Brian's been involved in percussion for a long period of time, both in the San Francisco area and in and around the outlying Boston areas. Brian's best known for putting together two of his favorite things, marimba and voice, together to make his marimba cabaret. As I also mentioned, Brian and his husband also run an inn in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where they do all of the things required to run that facility while also putting on a regular marimba concert series. It's an unusual but fulfilling life that he's been able to create. 
I got in touch with Brian because he was also part of PASIC 2021. He, along with recent guests Alexandros Fragiscatos and Danielle Moreau, performed as part of the Percussion with Voice New Music Research Day. Brian, along with fellow percussionist Nathan Smith, who Pete knew from his original days working at Mizzou, performed a few selections to close out the 3 p.m. concert, including what is likely the first performance of any work by Demi Lovato, along with the crowd chanting back, not sorry, during said selection. It was a blast watching Brian's enthusiasm and musical energy and excellence shine through. And it was great getting him on here to tell his story. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on November 2nd and 4th, 2021. And it begins right now. All right. So, Brian, tell me what you're going to be doing at PASIC, when you're performing, all that, etc. Yeah. So I am excited to be part of this amazing lineup of percussionists who are also vocalists. Uh, The New Music Research Presents focuses on percussion and voice. Specifically, I will be singing and playing marimba. I do uh, covers of show tunes, so musical theater and pop songs. How does one get into accompanying yourself on for show tunes, singing and marimba? I definitely stumbled upon this. Like so many of us, finding our niche is not a straight line. It was not something that I was trained in. Uh, You know, I went to music conservatory. I have two degrees in percussion performance, and most of the music I play is not classical. And I kind of found my weird mix of things by embracing things that I just love. I just have, you know, unabashed love and passion for. I definitely grew up um, in a musical and artistic family. We would go see plays and musicals and concerts. And, you know, I was lucky to have piano in the house. Um, My grandmother and my dad both played, my mom sang. And so there was always something musical happening, whether it was being played in the house or we were watching it or going to see it together. I grew up loving musicals. That was always a thing I enjoyed. And I was always singing, actually. I would, my mom would tell me stories that my teachers would, like in elementary school, you know, when they have the parent teacher conference, whatever, they'd say, like, oh, you know, Brian's very, very active. I definitely have an ADD kid. Um, And I would often be singing or humming. Like I couldn't just keep quiet or keep still. I didn't study voice in uh, school as a, you know, as a major or anything. Um, I mean, I sang in choirs and whatnot, but that was on the side. Percussion was definitely more of my uh, passion and interest at the time. It really wasn't until, I guess, grad school that I started looking outside of classical concert music. It was sort of a, it kind of felt taboo, to be honest, And I think this is changing, but a lot of conservatories, I mean, it's in their name. They're conservative. Sure. Um, That's sort of an ongoing challenge uh, with lots of repercussions. I finally felt free to explore. And I remember in one studio class, I did a West Side Story uh, cover. One of the first ones I did, it was Something's Coming. Mm -hmm. And I played it. And I remember being terrified of their reaction, you know, whether... 
the teacher would not approve of me doing something not classical percussion music mm-hmm. um, or the, you know, the more jock bro types in the studio mm-hmm. just laughing at me, but they loved it. They yeah. were like, this is so cool. I've never seen anyone do this before. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait, really? Like, this is okay. Like you, yeah. you welcome this. And that you was were, the, con- were you concerned that they were giving going to be just, I can't really snap, but just like, they're just snap. Snap, just not answering, but just giving you snaps the whole time. <laughs> that would have like, been are you a bus. jet or a shark? What's going on right now? <laughs> that would have been impressive if they all like teamed up and knew um the reference. But yeah. I would not put that I would I would put that past them. <laughs> <laughs> that enough. would have been an awesome response though, if everyone just like blank stared, stared at me quiet and started snapping and st- and began dancing. Yeah. That would have been that would have greatly changed my mind about the, you know, the culture of the percussion <laughs> studio. At the time. But no, they were actually really supportive and um, uh, it took a few years, but I ended up um, finding my duo partner in this um, Greg Jukes, who he and I have created uh, shows based on this. And I never would have guessed, you know, as a freshman in college that I'd be singing show tunes, performing on my front porch of the inn that I own and be absolutely beaming in my element. You yeah. know, you never know where your your element will will find you. What what kind of accommodations did you see early on when you were trying to put together, like let's say, a set list for this kind of thing um, that you needed to make it so that people were not only paying attention to you playing but also paying attention to your singing and could, you know, hear you sing, honestly. That's a really good question. Some of the best advice I got was actually after my first show, been doing some solo recitals, like at the library or, you know, in grad school, I'd done a marimba and voice recital and it was definitely more classical. And this was the first time I booked a club. Uh, It was like a sit down theater and people came and paid, you know, a ticket um, to come and see me do the show. And apparently the whole time I was looking down, I was looking down at the marimba because I'm, you know, playing marimba, reading music, not just reading music, reading lyrics. So my eyes were either stuck on the iPad. I mean, I had the, you know, the big iPad with the Bluetooth page turner because you can't possibly, I could either memorize the music or the lyrics, maybe not both. So I needed to have something in front of me. I remember thinking like, okay, I've got this. I can, you know, go get through the show. Afterwards, this really supportive fan, I I had never seen them perform, but they had seen me and they said, I love what you're doing, but don't forget that people are coming to see you and not the top of your head. (laughs) And it was a really nice reminder that as much as I, you know, we'd like to think, oh, playing the marimba, it's so impressive. And so, you know, visually, cool to watch um percussion is a very visual physical thing yep as soon as you start singing as soon as words come out of your mouth that is the first thing that people are looking at and they're looking at your face to express or communicate right and so if you are seeing a a singer you know staring at music and not even looking at the audience there's that connection isn't there and i really valued that advice because it, I, I would think of that. I would either put my music stand higher up so that um, 
it's not, I'm not looking low and it's a little bit more forward facing. It also inspired me to memorize more so that I could look out and, you know, have more engagement. Um, also a very key part is getting one of these Brittany Mike style um, headsets. Yeah. Uh, specifically, I've got a Countryman E6. So I'm getting a really close um, pickup. Yeah. And because, you know, you're turning left and right. You're looking all around. Yeah. I, I Before I made the investment, I had to have a microphone on a boom stand. And that was like the worst way to perform. Yeah. I mean, imagine trying to play marimba and just like not move your head. Like in any, if you had to reach yeah. the lower end. No, you can't. That wasn't the right fit, so it was definitely pricey, but worth getting this wireless uh, receiver so that I could pipe into whatever system they have, yeah. have this consistent um, pickup on my voice. And it had a side benefit of, you know, it would pick up a little bit of the marimba. So mm -hmm. the marimba would be somewhat amplified, but the voice was um, stronger, so it actually provided a natural balance, too, because, you know, the, the marimba is always going to um, compete. And... Um, yeah, those were kind of the, the elements that made this this show feasible. Have you either done master classes or talked to students who are who are studying this or, or doing it? And the, one of the reasons I bring this up is that there are a number of times when I've seen uh, performers do the singing and playing marimba stuff in particular, and they are either there are two things that are going on. One is that they are either practically shouting so that they mm -hmm. can be heard over the instrument. Or they're just playing the marimba just too loud. And and so I don't know if, if those things come up and like how you kind of assess the situation when you're presenting with that. Yes. And yeah, I've I've been fortunate to do a number of of classes, either introducing uh players to the concept or working with young students who are discovering this themselves. And I'm so happy to like pay it forward because I wish I had that. Sure, yeah. <laughs> when I was in school. Figuring it out, you know, it took a lot of trial and error and, you know, even just recording and listening back or watching yourself back and go, God, I'm doing that with my neck while I'm yeah. playing? Like, yeah. what the heck? Um, yeah, those are definitely common things that happen. I think we forget that our perspective as the percussionist is so different than five or 10 feet in front of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could talk forever about the sound of mallets over the marimba versus yeah. in front. Same thing. You can always hear your voice, but if you're playing over the marimba, you you have a wall of sound you're competing with. So, um, I mean, the microphone, obviously, um, the headset helps with the balance to be able to control that. Sometimes it can actually go too far where you have only the voice coming through the speaker and no marimba. Mm -hmm. Then you're kind of like, you know, lopsided. Sure. Um, but if you're in a setting where you don't have sound equipment um, to sort of balance the the occasion, you do have to get comfortable playing um, underplaying um, with the marimba, a lighter touch, still being able to get the feel and sound that you want. But that's also a skill to have, whether you're in any mixed ensemble or setting where you you have to adjust. It turned into one of these like, I don't know if you can see, you know. Yeah, you're your head, your head and head. yeah multitasking kind of thing because um so so much of what you do has to be on a certain autopilot so that you can dial it in and adjust it um definitely playing to support the voice because i mean i don't know if there's some universal hierarchy of instruments but the voice will always rise to the top in terms of who you balance to or who yeah. you yield to 
just like an accompanist is going to follow the singer because right. they have to take a big breath here. So you have to wait for them to come in. Any instrument you play has to balance to the voice. Unless the goal is that they're just on the same level and it's more of a ethereal, cloudy kind of thing. If you have words, you need to hear the words. And that right. means balancing to the instrument. Uh, with the arrangements that you do, are you typically playing off of piano score and just reading it down? Are you going chords and you're making up a part or mixture? How, how are you uh, arranging the marimba part? I sort of laugh thinking what what I used to do. Um, sure. It has certainly evolved from when I started. Yeah. Um, you know, I came from a very, well, a traditional platform where, you know, if you're transcribing music for the marimba, you know, you're taking Bach lute suites, you are playing what is written and only making adaptations or adjustments if you must, you know, yeah. you must be loyal to the printed part and to change something by an octave for resonance or whatever is like, you know, a right. big, big risk. Um, yeah. So I felt a lot of loyalty to the printed um, music. And when I would start to adapt from, you know, it, it, sometimes you can get a piano score, sheet music. Um, sometimes those are really plain, you know, beginner parts that yeah. are not going to sound very full on the marimba. Sometimes I would actually transcribe from a recording. And those were the most painstaking, but sometimes the most rewarding because I would like you know, write down the exact baseline I heard, not necessarily what was printed yeah. or, you know, come up with something that was very suited to the marimba, mm -hmm. but took a lot of work on the front end. Um, I remember one of the first times I ever did these, um, I had a marimba cover band for a while where there were like four players. It was actually most of the, my quartet, the Boston percussion group. Um, and I would write out these arrangements and each person had a part. And I was trying to be very, you know, by the book and by the note. And to be honest, it was way more work than I needed to do. Mm -hmm. um, like, I felt as if I needed to treat it like a formal orchestral score and honor all the voices and all the parts, which, and, you know, on one hand is a very nice thing to do to try to be loyal to it. But yeah. I started getting more comfortable, like knowing how to interpret yeah, a lead sheet or an interpret, hey, this, you know, 10 finger piano part doesn't really, I can't lay all these notes down. Right. What's the essence of it? You start to, you know, apply that um, theory and ear training and voice leading and just follow, okay, what's, what's the, what's the framework here that I need to maintain to get right. the point across? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I went from, you know, transcribing and, and writing in my own arrangements on Sibelius Mm -hmm. the um, you know the notation system I wouldn't start practicing until I'd input it from a score or made my own arrangement for two instruments yeah. to now I just download stuff off of music notes mm -hmm. whether it's a lead sheet or a piano part and I can I wouldn't say sight read but I can you know see what's laid out know how the song goes and yeah. kind of approximate um the more practice you do that with, I mean, the more often you can just skip the steps of transcribing, writing it down, working it out to just like zooming out, getting the big picture. And yeah, I do just read down uh, a lot of piano sheet music and also helps because it usually has the form written out. 
right. a, a lot of the songs do have, you know, repeats. They're not through composed. Some some uh, shows are through composed, but some they just have the repeats built in. Got the Bluetooth page turn, and I can just go back and forth and and work my way through it, and kind of find my own way through it. Yeah. Unless you're doing Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen, in which case that is through composed. But Gotcha. Okay. I don't know that tune, but... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> my example was going to be um, Around the World from Grey Gardens, uh, <gasps> the musical, which is through composed and quite long and heavy. Yeah. And actually, while it is this pretty virtuosic piano part, it actually lays really well across the marimba and vibraphone. Mm. Um I'd only performed it, I think, once or twice because it's really tricky, but it has these really cool, like, six-tuplet runs kind of up and down the instrument yeah. and um, this really quirky character singing over it. It's a very heavy song, if anyone is given a listen, but it has so much character in it that it's fun to discover these piano parts that are really written for the marimba. Yeah. Like, Jason Robert Brown has a bunch of those, too. Um mm-hmm. Trying to think who else, but yeah, sometimes you discover composers didn't know that they wrote marimba parts for you, basically. Yeah. Yeah, of course. How often do you play in this kind of setting by yourself? And how often are you with your duo partner? I mean, that just flipped upside down when COVID happened. Um, mm-hmm. because I would have said, you know, two years ago, I would say, Oh, I rarely play solo. I usually have someone with me. Um that's I think the reason I felt comfortable with another person is one, just for the added instrument, you know, usually drum set will find its way to fit, you know, in with the arrangement and I'll feel kind of empty without it. Like if I'm doing uh, the ladies who lunch from company that needs like a bossa nova drum set behind it. When I play solo in the marimba, I try to replicate that, but I'm doing a lot more work than just playing the chords. I'm also trying to, provide the rhythmic underpinning yeah. while also singing yeah. in character out of time. <laughs> right. um, but so, yeah, a lot of times I would defer to playing with uh, Greg um, who we just read each other so well, it's very easy to play. You know, when you find your person um, you can naturally um, fill in the gaps. A lot of times there would be just a need for the sustain uh, of the yeah. vibraphone because the marimba, as much as I love it, it, it has a decay and the vibraphone can help s- support and cover up uh, some of that space that if the song needs it, there's some songs I, I wouldn't do solo. Yeah. Um, that, of course, changed when COVID happened and I found myself live streaming on Facebook from my basement, mm-hmm. which might have been the most demoralizing feeling I've ever had, second to performing for four people my i had an audience of four at one fringe festival a few years back and that was not demoralizing they were very sweet but it was tough to play for four people an hour show that you know you hope to have a crowd yeah yeah. Um, anyway but the the pandemic has had so many silver linings um i mean the more time has passed, the more of these silver linings I've discovered and and so appreciate because it forced me to develop a sense of independence, yeah. to be my own drummer, to be my own accompanist so that I would so easily say, no, I could never do that solo. I need Greg here. 
mm-hmm. because Greg could be there. Yeah. When Greg couldn't show up and it was just me, I'm like, well, either I figure this out or I don't perform. Right. And suddenly, I mean, this last summer, um, I had these weekly porch concerts, uh, Marimba Mondays, as they're mm-hmm. now known in town. <laughs> um, and I would roll the marimba out onto our front porch, which prominently faces Commercial Street, which is the main drag in Provincetown. Mm-hmm. And people would just walk by, sit on the sidewalk, sit on the grass and watch uh, live music. And I did this so regularly that I learned how I could trust myself um, and support myself in a way that I I wouldn't if that wasn't the only option. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely taught me a lot of independence that way, but I love and welcome the chance to play with uh, new people. Uh, my husband uh, is a recovering high school band director. He taught instru- instrumental music for 15 years. And I mean, as you know, it's a tough job. He he burnt out, but he plays a lot of instruments. So sometimes he'll play drum set with me. Sometimes he'll play trumpet, a little backup. And um, uh, there's also an amazing flute player in town who we will do flute and marimba uh, duets. Yeah. Not written for that. We're just reading off of whatever we want and yeah. kind of discover our own thing. So I feel I've gained a little bit more independence as a um, soloist, but also a collaborator, kind of as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, I didn't know if you're, um, when you brought up that your your husband sometimes joined you as a, a recovering band director, if he, uh, if he plays like, we'll say like sixth grade level tenor sax, um, and you try to make it work in that way or something like that. He's a trumpet player. Like that was his yeah. um, instrument in college. And so he's definitely a competent, comfortable sure. trumpet player. Um, sorry, oh, if he's listening, competent, that sounds so um, cruel. He is a solid trumpet player. There you go. His drum set playing, he will admit, is like middle school, early high school uh-huh. um, but hey, he's got, you know, he's got the the backbeat. He's got the like two fills and yeah, yeah. that can do most pop songs. You know, sure, yeah. Michael's Faith. We got um, You'll Be Back from Hamilton. You know, just yeah, need yeah. a little two and four going on. Of course. Um, that gives me a little bit of a little bit of a break. Nice. Like, one thing I definitely found is as I would play solo, I would fatigue a lot faster. Sure. Because I'm just having to do a lot more. Yeah. And sing and generally host, you know, the the event. Yeah. Um, but I'm happy to have uh, my husband join me in so many, so many ways. It's such yeah. a weird, weird concept, but this is our new normal. This is sort of a return to the Percussive Arts Society for me. Um, I admit I'd kind of fallen out of the network for a while. Not super intentionally, Um you know, I would go to PASIC a lot when I was in college and grad school and, uh, you know, a young professional starting to freelance. I started my uh, day job working in the admissions office um, at Boston Conservatory. I ended up working there for 11 years. And as my, you know, admissions life kind of took off, my percussion seeking life kind of was put on the back burner. So I stopped going to PASIC for a long time. I admit I didn't really see a need for it because I wasn't seeking out a college job or, uh, you know, I wasn't auditioning for orchestras. I kind of knew the instruments I like. I know the sticks I like. I have kind of what I need to, you know, play marimba and sing. And 
Um, it wasn't until I saw the percussion invoice as the focus day or day formerly known as focus day right. that really um, piqued my interest. And so it's kind of a nice full circle to come back. I mean, to be presenting at an event that I'd gone so much as a young, you know, young student, really, um, I'm excited to come back and kind of show and hopefully pay forward um, to other percussionists to see that this voice and marimba thing, voice and percussion is not just a novelty, not just like a parlor trick, but actually like this whole wealth, wealth of opportunity and repertoire and expression that is available to them. So I hope to help inspire more singing marimbists. I would love to have someone to share a set with. <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited about it. So Brian, tell me um, what your, as I mean, it, it probably, I guess not as much as they once were, but your percussion responsibilities as they are. And, and then as well as your, your actual livelihood responsibilities. <laughs> oh, you mean uh, as an innkeeper? Yeah. Yeah. Day to day job. Yes. I, I still pinch myself and sort of laugh at times when I look at my career. Um, I, I don't know if you had looked at my website, BrianCalhoun.com is outdated. It is several years old. Um, it still says I am the director of admissions at Boston Conservatory, that I live in Boston, that I run a percussion quartet. It does have the Merma Cabaret on there, but it doesn't represent my current life. Two years ago, uh, my husband and I got married, uh, July of 2019. We were honeymooning in Provincetown, which is a beautiful beach town at the tip of Cape Cod um, that we love. And it was sort of a joke that, like, oh, what if we what if we lived here? You know, when you're on vacation, you just don't want to leave. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Settled and made our lives here. Just, yeah. just never come back and just live with the stuff we brought. We were joking about this and. And Tom was wondering, Tom's my husband, he was like, what would we do if we lived here? It's like, well, you know, there's no conservatory of music that I could work in the admissions office for out here. And the high school is pretty small. They don't really have a full-time band director. So I don't know. We've always joked about um, having a bed and breakfast uh, where we lived in Boston. We had a two bedroom place and, you know, we'd have family stay with us and Tom, would bake amazing scones and quiches and what have you. And so my parents would joke like, Oh, it's their, it's their own little B and B who knew that that little joke of Tom's, you know, love of hosting people and cooking breakfast yeah. um, turned into our future where he thought, well, we could host this. Um, we could own an inn. We could host people. We could also have a space that can host music events. Mm -hmm. That was very important to us was that it have a musical component. And, you know, fast forward to now, we own this inn that uh, has 11 bedrooms. So it's a good size. We've got a few staff who work with us. Um, it's got a nice inside common room and this really prominent front porch. Um, we looked at a lot of places that were for sale. And this was the place that stood out as the intersection of all these things. I mean, do not misunderstand. I never had a dream of being an innkeeper. You know, I clean toilets. We do so much laundry, you wouldn't believe. We're always on call because when you 
run your own business, you are, you know, you're always on. Yeah. Um, that was not the dream I had as a percussion student in school. So yeah. it's kind of funny how I got here. But to be honest, the inkeeping is sort of, what's the word? It's a means to an end. Yeah. It allows us to host people. It allows us to put on music events for the public. Yeah. It's really like the platform through which we bring to people together through music. Yeah. And that is like bottom line. That's what I want mm -hmm. with my career is to bring people together through music. The inkeeping supports us to do that. And <laughs> can't believe to say like, I couldn't be happier. We were hosting guests um, year round. We're open year round and the summer is our busiest time. We're, we're basically working every day. We technically have one day off, but on those days off there are porch concerts. And so one of us is producing, one of us is performing and you're always on, but it's great to think that, Hey, I'm actually practicing and performing. And this is part of my job. My job is representing who I am as a musician. And um, part of our mission is to, to uplift those around us. Um, yep. we, we provide this platform for guest artists and local singers and songwriters to, to come and perform on our porch. So we would mm -hmm. constantly produce other musicians, not just myself, um, it, it'd be a sort of a, what's the word? Um, well, it'd be a selfish thing if all we did was host concerts that were just me. Um, we're not quite <laughs> that um, yeah. self-involved, but um, obviously I enjoy performing, but I also enjoy providing that platform for folks in the area to perform. And our guests are delighted and show up and, you know, see this giant, hunk of furniture in the living room and say what is that so there's a little sign on it said this is a marimba mm. you know that constant explanation um Do, does but, it have as a sub note uh don't look at it don't touch it this is not a table <laughs> anything like that show up yeah on it. it does it's it's a laminated sign i want to get a, a, a bigger sign it's this little laminated sign that just says this is a marimba i say it's like a it's like a giant xylophone Thank you for not touching or putting anything on top. Nice. You know, signed the management. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's worked most of the time. But I, yeah, I, I want someone to invent like a, a, some kind of cover that's like either a hard cover or waterproof or maybe even a cover with a slope on it. I, yeah, I yeah. was brainstorming some like foam angled piece that sits on top of the instrument so that no one could put something because it's not a flat surface. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe spikes, the way that they keep birds off of ledges so yeah, that yeah. people don't touch or put anything on the marimba. But generally, you know, it draws attention and people are curious about it. And then when I tell them, hey, well, come back on Monday at 7, there'll be a porch concert. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a, a perk. Uh, guests who check in don't realize they're checking into a bed and breakfast and concert venue. Nice. But yeah, that's our that's our weird intersection of uh, our life here. Maybe uh, maybe just spread some butter on it or something like that. So like just it, anything that's on it just slips right off if they put it on there. Yeah, I think butter and rosewood mix really well together. Oh sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe bad idea. Uh, workshop this. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I do think some foam. I was trying to find some, you know, like those 
wedges, those foam wedges. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, either the stuff you see like sound dampening or, you know, acoustic paneling, something yeah. like that, that was at an angle that just sets on top of the marimba. It's lightweight, but it prevents anything from being put on top of it. And yeah. it could even be the place for the sign that's just like, no touch. Yeah. <laughs> I think we haven't we haven't quite yet discovered that because it's either going to be that or we're going to go the complete opposite direction. And I'm going to build out this big, beautiful shelf mm -hmm. that the marimba sits under, but it also doubles as a bar so that people oh. can sit at and put their drinks on it right in front and behind the marimba. Mm. And I could play for them. I mean, like piano bar style. Yeah, yeah. You know, the piano surface is actually a bar, but it's really just an electric keyboard with a piano-shaped table. Right, yeah. So maybe that. If someone wants to build like a custom marimba table to go over the marimba, we're in business. Nice. <laughs> I like it. I like spreading new ideas. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And is there anything that's related to running this business that I mean is similar to just being a gigging musician or I mean things that are like levels of organizing or business side anything that's kind of related to it that you're surprised that you actually had the skills built in you just had no idea oh yeah I mean the words transferable skills yeah are like so golden. Um, I mean, I'm used to saying this. So my my background um, before being an innkeeper was uh, an admissions recruiter for, you know, School of Music, where my job was to convince students and their parents sure. that going into music was a viable and, you know, successful endeavor. Yeah. And, you know, I would say to the parents, especially who were worried about their kid, not getting a you know orchestra job or not being able to pay their rent from gigs is like yeah. well hey musicians have get a lot of transferable skills and um it's kind of funny my job went from preaching that to practicing that um because everything from you know email communication to calendar management i mean your time management is so critical to balancing all the plates you're spinning um and you know you also bring in that element of um i mean customer service when i think of customer service as sort of like a sterile transaction where someone's behind a counter and someone else is paying them money for something yeah. but it's so much more than that i mean it's it's creating a space that people are comfortable in right and i think as performers our job is kind of doing that like as a performer, your audience, you want to engage and make feel comfortable. So yeah. as much as it isn't a traditional performance, hey, when we're checking people in or hosting them and serving breakfast in the morning, you're kind of performing this act of, a, you know, a welcoming person and making a space that people feel comfortable in. Um, a lot of those attitudes or techniques that you use as a performer totally translate into being a host. Um, a lot of my work in admissions definitely translates because I was, you know, working with applicants, uh, students and parents and having to manage systems and emails. I mean, when that phone rings, you answer it, you know, right. because that could be the difference between someone booking that night or booking you for a gig. If someone has to wait for you to return a call, you know, a day or two later, they've hired someone else. 
So a lot of that urgency and that sense of, um, you know, eagerness to please, eager to, to be available. It's just, you know, the more available you are and, and present that open-mindedness, that's the type of person you'd want to engage in business with. So um, I think, I mean, so much translates. I could go on. <laughs> that's great. I, um, the weird thing with with things that transfer in, in the with the skills that we all develop, I would say in particular to being a percussionist, is that I always think of how many percussionists end up making really good administrators, you know, or or like school music directors. Like it just yeah. seems like it's it's we're just so used to managing all this all this all this equipment and people. That it's like, oh, and I guess I could just apply it just to people and a building. All right, cool. Absolutely. I mean, the sheer logistics operational um, savvy is, is yeah. I mean, and I actually credit, credit a lot of it to my um, undergrad times doing, you know, band trips, mm-hmm. uh, loading a truck. Yeah. Uh, I, I have always thought that going on tour is like the best education for a young percussionist. Because you can learn to play these instruments, but until you've packed and moved and shipped them, my God, you don't know what you're getting into. Um, A a school, I will not name that I attended, um, didn't have a tour component. And these kids were just, you know, putting their instrument in an elevator, taking it up to the hall and rolling it out. And that was moving. And I'm like, you don't even know how to take apart a marimba or how to safely transport timpani. Like, you don't even know to... Like these are basic things that you don't learn unless you do. Um, but this yep. ability to manage large logistical elements, whether it's hauling, you know, instrument cases or loads of laundry, there's a lot of logistical elements that, of course, my husband being a band director, he's all over. I mean, right, yeah. He manages our turnover schedule, and all of this is totally from his days of, you know, managing instrument catalogs um, yeah. and planning band trips. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of percussioning that translates to uh, administering, <laughs> administration, percussioning to administering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead of carrying, you know, sort of schlepping drums, I'm schlepping like our our packs that we call them our packs with have the you know the sheets and blankets and towels and stuff to the room so right i i am fortunate that our marimba is on the first floor and i can just about almost roll it out onto the front porch i have to take one of the rails off but um my my days of schlepping the marimba are are less fewer than they used to but i've definitely yeah. paid my dues doing that that makes complete sense when you consider how many old buildings for um you know for music schools and stuff like that have small doorways that you gotta you gotta remove bars anyway to get either a a five octave marimba or a 32 inch timpani into yeah in san francisco i I played with the san francisco symphony youth orchestra and that was like the sweetest gig because we played on all the stuff that the the members played on um, mm-hmm. were also our teachers. So you were really, you know, um, supported by them, but you literally would show up and all the stage hands set up all the instruments onto the stage. You didn't even have to move them. Yeah. You'd have to like move them between pieces, but you know, the gongs and the timpani and the everything just showed up on the stage. And I definitely 
had a sense, you could tell what students knew to appreciate that and what students had no concept of that being like a privilege. Um, You know, I had three years of drum corps where you haul your stuff up and down in and out of a truck, you know, every day, sometimes twice a day to the rehearsal location and then to the show that night that like, I wish more people did drum corps in a way or more people had the experience of moving instruments because of what that teaches you, not just as a musician, but it's sort of respect for the instrument and respect for (laughs) your fellow humans. Right. Well, you know, this is something that gets brought up with um, groups like, I I mean, like So and Third Coast and and things like that. And I'm sure you figured this out with the the Boston Quartet, where it's like, you know, they, they will say, I was like, you know, it's, I mean, obviously we've put in our due, we paid our dues to get where we are. And we're in a, like, if you're in So or Third Coast, you're in a different place than you were you know, a number of years ago, but it took traveling on the road. It took, it took being in a van with these people 24 hours a day uh, and and sleeping, you know, five to a room and, yeah. and packing all the instruments with you, like to even, even realize that this might be something you can make as your full-time career. Yeah. The, the sacrifice and what you do to like, just to show up. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff, I remember we, um, the, the quartet, we did this gig, I think, I think it was at a, at a college mm-hmm. and they had no instruments for us to use. We're like, fine, we'll bring all of our own. And it was like, you know, a full U-Haul and two cars. I mean, two like SUVs and like all of this, you know, hours of schlepping just to show up, just to get there. Yeah. And that was before any of the rehearsal or any of the sound check or any of the actual concert. I mean, that, that image of the the tip of the iceberg, yeah, you know what you see above the water and everything below it, right? That resonates because all someone sees when they walk in the room is like the very result, the product, the very tip of it. Mm-hmm. But the like hours and the sweat, not to mention you know over time doing that, the logistics involved, it definitely um, tests you and makes sure you're sure that this is something you want to do. or not and like again that's why i feel like you know all these young percussionists in school i'm like you know it's you're not going to like show up to your first gig and all the instruments are just going to be there right like you have to know what you're getting into and that's a lot more complicated than just than just showing up um it's definitely i think that's partly why i sort of moved in the direction of i mean higher ed administration and innkeeping because I don't love traveling. I don't yeah. love schlepping instruments. My biggest schlep is, like I said, just rolling the marimba out to the front porch. Right. So I'm good with that. You know, when I need to, if if we are called for something, the quartet can, you know, rally and bring the trucks and, you know, make it work. But I've definitely um, reached a point of my life and my physical health that I'd rather not for, for the time being. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Let's back up, Brian. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, San Francisco Bay, California. I grew up in Los Altos. It's like the South Bay part. And um, yeah, I started I started college at um, California State University, Hayward. It was okay. a state school called Hayward at the time. It later changed names to East Bay. Okay. But when I was there, it was Cal State Hayward. And um, 
yeah, I went there because my high school percussion teacher was the percussion teacher there. And I actually didn't know I wanted to major in music. I was not sure yet. So the state school was kind of the safety or a safe place to go because you could major in anything. And I ended up majoring in music, but I actually transferred from there because that was what early 2000s and there were budget cuts to the CSU system. Yeah. Our private lessons were cut from an hour a week to half hour. And mm. this was finally when I realized, oh, no, I really do want to be a musician. Yeah. I ended up transferring to San Francisco Conservatory where I finished my undergrad. Um, was there for two years. I finished my bachelor's. And then what moved me to Boston was grad school um, at Boston Conservatory. And I never left Boston <laughs> until I moved to Provincetown last year. Yeah. Or two, wait, was it last year or two years ago? Um, During the pandemic or the year before? Wait, this is 2021. Yes. Um, we moved to Provincetown last April. Okay. So about a year and a half ago. Two years ago, the the idea was started. Wait, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, two years ago. 2019 was the idea of moving to Provincetown to open a and b Yeah. And then 2020 was the year it happened. Only as like, uh, what do you call it? Hobbyists. Uh, my dad plays guitar and plays piano. My mom sings. In fact, my parents met making music. Um, it was a party in San Francisco and my parents had both moved there from the Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. They met here through mutual friends and my dad was playing guitar. My mom had like a little notebook with lyrics and chords on it. Mm -hmm. Um, to the songs that she knew. And so it was just like a, what do you call it? A, a jam, I guess, at mm -hmm. parties. That was the entertainment was like, let's sit around and sing songs like yeah. hippies do in the sixties or whatever it was. <laughs> um, no, not the same. They met in the seventies. I should know this. <laughs> I don't, but anyway, they met making music and it's really beautiful. Cause there's, there's actually this, um, I have a picture of it, of the song they sang. Um, it's my mother's handwriting, which is very distinctive. And my dad writing some of the chords that were missing. So there was this beautiful like memento of like the day they met. Mm. Um, and so there's always been, you know, music in my life, but um, yeah. the only other uh, professional musician was my grandmother, uh, my dad's mom. She was a pianist and a high school choir director. Nope, not high school. The church, sorry, the local church choir director for like 30 years. Mm. Um, and she was so proud when, you know, when I was going into music and she is definitely a big inspiration and introduced me to so much music and choral music, especially. Yeah. Well, do you mean, do you mean choral music or, um, or is this, or Broadway stuff? Oh, so my, my grandmother, she loved, um, uh, I mean, classical music, orchestral music. We especially loved the, the choral group Chanticleer. Yeah. They're, they're an all-male, um, like, I think it's 12 voices. Their tagline is like an orchestra of voices. And Chanticleer uh, has always had a special place in my family's life, but also my, you know, musical taste. Um, I definitely... Um, I mean, we would go see their concerts. Chanticleer is a San Francisco-based group, so we would see them several times a year. I think my parents had season tickets. So, you know, again, I was lucky to be supported and, and brought to see a lot of uh, performances. And I absolutely fell in love with their voices because they were 
you know, men, but many of them saying um, uh, they were countertenors yeah. or something called falsetto or. Right. Um, um, or PDQ Bach calls bargain countertenors. I don't know if you. Right. Was that? Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't oh, have to hire any other voices. They can cover everything. That, yeah. Well, just that, exactly. Yeah. They could reach these ranges that actually I was really impressed by it. Sort of, yeah. I would try to mimic and discover, oh, I can do that too. So actually a lot of Chanticleer was almost my own, um, you know, I mean, it opened my eyes to a lot of what uh, the voice could do. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I'll never forget when, when my grandmother passed, um, we had so many of her CDs and she just had dozens of CDs of Chanticleer. I mean, they have a lot of albums. And so I feel like we have them all now yeah. um, because, and I'm so grateful that she gave that to me. Um, when when she passed, actually, um, you know, there's sometimes in like tragedy where like in that moment, you know exactly what you need to do. Right. And, you know, I, I went straight home. I was living in San Francisco at the time and, you know, wanted to be with my family. And I knew the thing to do to honor her was... Um, I made an arrangement of this very popular choral setting of Ave Maria by Franz Giebel mm-hmm. that lots of choirs have, have performed and some there's some band arrangements. Um, yeah. There was even a drum corps that uses this as their like warm-up song. Um, okay. But I knew that I needed to arrange this. This song was often the encore or the finale of Chanticleer concerts. And so my parents, you know, we always had this very strong attachment to it. So the second I heard that um, she had passed, I knew that I wanted to arrange um, this choral piece for marimba. The piece is actually written for two choirs. It's sort of, I don't not contrapuntal. I forget what the word is, but two sort antiphonal. of- Antiphonal. Antiphonal, yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So yeah. this translated, like so much choral music does, to roles on the marimba. Yeah. So I made this arrangement for two marimbas. Uh, my buddy Stan, Muncie and I recorded it in like an hour um, because the funeral was in South Dakota, like coming up really quickly. And um, we played this recording um, at the funeral and it was such a beautiful way to celebrate her, but also for me to sort of give back that musical influence she had, because I forgot to to tell you this. um, My grandmother played marimba. How many people's grandmother played marimba? Um, and I didn't know this until I had a, a marimba. I was borrowing it from high school over the summer when my grandparents came to visit. This is in California yeah. you know, years ago. And uh, my grandmother just stands up and starts playing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, I knew she played piano, so she knows yeah. how the marimba works. But she just started playing through some scales. And I was like, she's like, oh, yeah. She she played the proper, the old school marching glockenspiel in mm-hmm. the her high school marching band. And I guess they had a marimba. And suddenly I felt like I was destined to do this thing that I never knew before. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why my grandmother never told me that she played marimba while I was learning to take percussion lessons and playing in the marching band and playing in the pit. It wasn't until that she just showed up and started playing. And there's this great photo of us in our pajamas, you know, some morning playing marimba duets. Um, Mm -hmm. So in some weird way, like my path was already part of my family. Um, yeah. This love of marimba, this love of choral music, of singing, all these things kind of emerged together. And I, yeah, have my grandmother Mildred to thank for that. 
I was thinking, so your grandmother's Jean Stuber or Vida Chenoweth? I was trying to remember who the, the first woman to <laughs> Right? Oh I wish. Yeah. I mean Keiko Abe, like <laughs> Yeah. Keiko Abe's my my very distant grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> very distant. Yeah. We're still I trying to figure out how she's how she's related, but we're pretty sure it's there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I just never you never know where your path takes you and where right. it comes from, but yeah, but I'm so grateful to have had that. Yeah. That influence and support. I mean, the oh. support is the main thing. When is it that you actually start playing percussion then? I mean, as I mentioned, I was pretty ADD, pretty active as a kid. Um, so of course there was pressure for me to take piano lessons. I took piano lessons for a few years in elementary school. Mm-hmm. I hated practicing. Yeah. I mean, I hated it so much. I sitting at the piano, I could not sit still. Um, I remember my mom was getting so desperate. She was coming up with these little schedules. We, I remember it. I have a picture in my mind of a piece of binder paper, and I had little boxes, and of under each box was the number five. Yep. And I would check these off if I practiced for five minutes. I would practice for five minutes, check it off, and then I could like run away. And, yeah, like, yeah. Leave. Yep. and then come back and practice for five minutes. And, and I think my goal was like 15 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Three, three sessions of five minutes each. Yeah. Sit at the piano. And I think my mom got me to do this one week. And I came back to my piano teacher that next week. And I was so proud. I was like, you're going to be so proud of me. I practice 15 minutes every day. And of course, the teacher looks back to me like in horror. And she was like, you should be practicing two hours a day. And I'm like, what? I don't want to do that. I was like, I quit. So I stopped piano. Um, my dad was sad. My grandmother was heartbroken. She was very upset that I stopped. I mean, I was like in sixth grade. I, sure. whatever. Um, I, for some reason, I don't remember what inspired me, but I started taking drum set lessons. I don't know if I like, you know, saw someone perform or just something about the action, the activity of drumming yeah. was way more satisfying, especially as a, you know, hyperactive kid. Yeah. Um, so I started taking drum set lessons for a few years, but honestly, I remember thinking the snare drum is so loud. Right. Like the crash cymbals are so loud. It was like, and my teacher was like a metal drummer. He was in like a metal band. And so yeah. everything, you know, was really high stick and really sure. loud and, that's what I was being taught. And after like, you know, I was just learning the basics and then I started playing along with like recordings. So you would just turn the stuff up. It was like Metallica, yeah, which yeah. I loved. I loved, I actually loved Metallica, but listening to it, not playing it. Right. So at some point I stopped playing, taking drums at lessons because it was too loud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, finally, freshman year of high school, uh, my mom signs me up for um, band. Just she knew I was, a musician and thought he'll find something. And I walk into the band room and it's, you know, sort of love at first sight. I saw this instrument. It was the marimba. I had no idea what it was, but it looked like a giant piano and you played it with these cool sticks. Yeah. You're standing, it's active, it's, you know, melodic, but it's not too loud. It kind of was this perfect mix of all these things that I just got it immediately because I recognized it and I started playing all the mallet parts. And um, I mean, it wasn't just the marimba. I enjoyed all the tactile parts of percussion. I love that I could pick up a tambourine or, you know, 
crash the crash symbols and then put them down and then go do something else. Again, this like ADD aspect is strong with percussionists because we always have something else to play. And that was really when I found, you know, my, my field as it were, uh, and started taking uh, percussion lessons, um, like, you know, concert percussion lessons um, on snare drum, timpani and marimba in, in high school. So, yeah. And was that, that was with the teacher that you would actually study with in college too for a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So his name is Artie Storch. Um, He played, he was like the, you know, first call sub with the San Francisco symphony. He played all of the musicals in the pit. Mm. So I actually never thought of it this way, but I think that's probably why I was drawn to him because he played a lot of pit orchestras. Yeah. Well, any show that came into town in the Bay Area, I mean, he was doing I mean, his first gig out of grad school. He went to Juilliard and then got a gig playing the tour of it was either a chorus line or Phantom of the Opera. It's a good show. Uh, I think it was one and then the other. He ended up playing Phantom of the Opera in San Francisco for like 11 years. And he says, you know, to this day, that music haunts him because <laughs> I bet. Yeah. But that music bought him like his first house and car and, you know, something else. Um, but yeah, so he played in the pit and, um, it's funny because so for a long time, I thought I wanted to be him. Mm -hmm. You know, you often meet a teacher or an artist who you look up to and think, I just want to copy your life. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I knew I loved musicals and I loved percussion. I thought, okay, yeah. Just like do pit orchestras for Broadway shows. That's what you want. And I did a lot of that. I mean, in college, I played in a lot of pits and I loved accompanying, but I always felt a little bit like disconnected. I mean, if you're lucky, you're playing in the pit and it's not covered and you can see the actors and singers above. And that's cool. And maybe afterwards, there's like a cast party where you hang out. But in most professional shows, there is none of that. Yeah. You may even be in a different room. Yeah. Yeah. Playing through a monitor or something like that, right? Well, that was it. I I did the um, the NYU Broadway Summit, um, okay. the percussion okay. that John Haas um, right. hosted. Because I was like, I'm done with grad school. I'm going to go to move to New York and be a you know pit orchestral. I mean, you know, a Broadway pit player. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of the opposite of epiphany, where you realize this idea you had was actually not at all what you wanted. Oh. It, it burst a bubble. That's still an epiphany. It's just not the, the, I guess, is there a positive and negative epiphany? I'm not sure. But. Right. This was a, a bad epiphany. <laughs> yeah. Well, we went to tour, you know, because part of the thing you'd, you'd play for the percussionist, you know, I got to play for, um, oh God, the pair of guys who played all of the ballet stuff. They, they played West Side Story like a million times and I played mm-hmm. West Side Story excerpts for them and, you yeah. know, got some great coaching feedback from them. Saparito? No, Jim Baker and Jim Saparito, something. I think they were a pair of gyms. Yeah. Anyway, um, part of the the uh, experience was touring the pit of these Broadway shows. Uh, you know, the Lion King pit is the coolest because, like, they're on display. There's, like, right. four marimbas. There's two. They're in different know, sections of the theater, too, if I remember. Yeah, and they're, like, on display. So that yeah. looks super cool. But then I toured the Wicked pit, Um and it was a guy I met, um, Jeff, Jeff something. I'm forgetting his last name. He was one of the regular players of the Wicked Pit. Yeah. It is a dressing room that has been mic'd up and a TV monitor to show the conductor. 
Yeah. It is literally a different room than the orchestra. And that was even one of the closer ones. There were other shows where the guys are in like a different building being piped in to the room. And I suddenly realized this is not what I want. Like yeah. that's so depressing. Yeah. You basically go into a practice room by yourself and play the same book and never see anyone else. That's yeah. Like, so, so that just crushed that dream for me. Yeah. Um, which is just as well, because I would have been very unhappy trying to, you know, chase that because that's hard to get into. But yeah, um, I think that that sort of the bottom falling out of that sort of was the perfect nudge, perhaps for yeah. me to realize, you know, I really do love musicals, but I think what I love more is singing them than <laughs> accompanying them. Yeah. Because there was always a part of me that even if I was playing you know, on the pit and looking up, like, I mean, I remember playing West Side Story in, in grad school and, um, you know, seeing the actors and singers and just being like, so amazed. I like wanted to be them. Like yeah. I wanted to sing the parts too. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously I wanted to play uh, percussion too. So removing the idea of being a pit orchestra musician was like kind of perfect because then I was like, well, it made room for actually what I wanted to do, which was sing the songs, mm -hmm. do them on my terms, right. play them, you know, on the marimba and kind of create my own show. Yeah. And pff, who knew that that's what ended up happening. And I've found my, you know, my niche. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's great. At what point when you're an undergrad, do you realize that you don't want to stay or you want to you that you're going to move to a different another school to finish out. I don't remember exactly what led up to this, but I knew that when I was applying for grad schools, um, I only applied to grad schools on the East Coast, New York, Boston, and um, um, Toronto and Montreal, uh, U of U of T and McGill. Yeah, I think I knew by this point I needed to get out of my comfort zone, mm -hmm. and I, I don't remember exactly what like pushed me to say that I didn't, I didn't have pressure to stay or pressure to leave. I just knew, you know what? I grew up here. I know the Bay area really well. I have really great contacts here. I, I partly didn't want to leave because I knew that if I left, I'd kind of have to start over uh, yeah. in a way, but I knew that I needed to be in a different place with new people where I was a smaller fish, um, perhaps, or just in a environment where I kind of had to start over. And yep. for some reason that wasn't terrifying. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In the moment you'd think, Oh, why didn't I want to just stay in my comfort zone? But I was, I had enough self-awareness to realize I needed to grow and be pushed outside my comfort zone. Yeah. I think honestly, my having done drum corps made that more feasible because I had just toured the country like three times. Yeah. So I was, you know, comfortable being in new environments and living in the Bay Area. I knew I was a, you know, California boy. I needed to try and see what winter's like <laughs> with snow and something not, right. you know, ideal weather year round to really like, you yeah. know, I don't know, yeah. break, break myself in a little bit. And I'm so glad I did. And aggressive Northeasterners. You needed that in your life. You just weren't sure yet. It's funny. I like, cause yeah, people tell me like, Oh, careful Boston. They're just a bunch of, you know, 
forgive me, but mass holes. Mass holes, yeah. <laughs> There's an E rating. Is the phrase. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. The idea of it was more aggressive than when I got there. Because when I got there, yeah, sure. A lot of people would speak directly or brisk, briskly, briskly. Yeah. That's not the right word. Yeah. Um, and to me, it was just, it just made sense. I think I actually discovered I'm much more of a Bostonian in the way that, you know, more direct or just hurry up and get it done as opposed right. to like a more laid back Californian. I mean, I'm using stereotypes, of course, but sure. I think there is a sense of more relaxed feeling, especially in the Bay Area where, for example, the weather's always nice. So there's no rush to go anywhere. In Boston, in the middle of February, you are in a hurry to get inside. Yes. So let's please hurry this up <laughs> and get home. Yeah. The weather kind of impacts the mentality I felt. And I don't know, it it kind of matched a sense of urgency that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, when I was first moving there for grad school, I thought I would spend two years there, move right back to the Bay Area and start yeah. gigging and freelancing. But I fell in love with Boston. I started getting some great gigs um, during grad school and, you know, and then had the day job in the office, in the admissions office and was like, all right, Boston's my life now. And my parents were super surprised because they thought I was this laid back California boy Mm -hmm. who, you know, suddenly was living in a town with winter, but it just fit. Yeah. When you move, what's the first as we're talking about like the aggressiveness and the cold and I, but what's the first thing that you realize when you've moved to the East that you're like, okay, this is just a completely different place. Your first, your first, first welcome, welcome. I'll put in quotes to the area. I'm trying to remember. I think there was a moment at a convenience store. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Where, or where I realized donuts or something I'm like that. Anymore. Yeah. It, it was the symphony mart. Yeah. Oh, the Symphony Mart, because I were Boston Conservatories in the Fenway, which is right down the hall, right down the street from Boston Symphony Hall. Yeah. And the, you know, a lot of the stores had Symphony in their names. So Symphony Mart was the little corner store. And I remember, I remember thinking like, oh, this is not, this is not San Francisco. This is not California. And yeah, it was like, people were just more abrupt and short and direct, but I was like, all right. I can, I can do that. I can match that. Um, I don't know. I guess that was part of it. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I remember I had some, some realization like, Oh, this is a different type of place. Um, but also I just loved that. Like you could just walk everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was fortunate to live pretty close. I just like lived a few blocks from the main campus and a few blocks more symphony hall and a few blocks more CVS and Trader Joe's. And I'm in this like super walkable city yeah. And, you know, mind you, you move in in like August or September where the weather is still pretty nice. So by the time that it starts to get cold and snowy, by that point, I was like already, you know, I'd already bought into this. Um, yeah. It's not like I moved into the middle of January and was like, forget this. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I never I never had. um like a negative, like the cold was part of it, but like I never felt like, oh, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have moved here. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just fit my, my sense of urgency. And sometimes when I would come back to California, I'd be like, gosh, it's so slow here. 
granted I was, you know, visiting family and friends, so I wasn't right. necessarily in a school or work environment. I'm, you know, you can still get judging. that sense though. But yeah, I just kind of felt it whether I'm sitting at a coffee shop or a restaurant, there's just like a difference in the yeah. pace. And um, I think also Boston has more of everything. There's more orchestras, there's more arts institutions, more museums, schools of music. You know, in San Francisco, there was really just, I mean, the San Francisco Conservatory, the San Francisco Symphony was the big one. Yeah. Yeah, then it just kind of dropped off from there and with smaller regional orchestras around yeah. that. It felt like there was just more of an art scene to mm-hmm. support more young people coming there. Yeah. Um, not that one is better than the other. I'm not, you know, sure. I'm not trying to value judge any of those things, but it fit what I was looking for and just this variety and versatility. And um, I don't know, just kind of felt like the right place to, to start my young adult life. From Aside from being a graduate student versus an undergraduate student, but what's different about the instruction um, that you're getting at in Boston versus San Francisco? Um, I mean, a lot of things change when you're in grad school. Sure. I remember feeling a sense of like, you can choose what you study, whereas an undergrad, you're kind of like handed, here's what you're going to learn. Right. You know, there's a lot of um, like prescribed laid out four years of instruction that this is what you're going to do. You kind of have to learn what's out there before you can start to make your own choices. Yeah. Not that fundamentally that's like, you know, across the board, how it should be, but I definitely felt a freedom to explore and create because you kind of already proven yourself in a way Um, that, yeah, it was, I mean, my last year at San Francisco, I was studying with Jack Van Geem, who at the time was the principal of San Francisco symphony And he was so supportive of me with this experiment of singing and playing. The first time I ever did that was with him. And this this was where I was transcribing a a baseline and working out, you know, these very meticulously notated things, trying to capture what was a much more spontaneous thing um, that he had recommended that I uh, study with Nancy Zeltzman, who was on faculty at Boston Conservatory. Yep. Granted, in, at Boston, they have a lot, um, like a different layout. You're studying with multiple teachers. It's not just a one-to-one thing. Um, so I studied with Nancy, but also Keith Aleo and Sam Solomon and the late John Grimes uh, on timpani. And so I had different influences and different people to try things out on. But across of it, I felt like, hey, what do you want to do? Because you've got two years with us and then you're kind of on your own. So what do you want right. to get out of this? And I felt a lot more empowered to choose what I wanted to focus on. And that was, well, you know, I was playing a lot of new music, but also um, kind of creating my own rep. And I felt like encouraged to do that as opposed to like, well, no, you should really finish this etude book or learn these excerpts. I was like, no, I knew pretty early on I was not going to go into the orchestral audition circuit. I wanted to get into you know, creating new things, whether that was new contemporary classical music or what turned into this show tune thing. So, yeah, yeah, I think it generally felt that encouragement to kind of focus on what I wanted to, which I try to remind, especially undergrads, if they're feeling burdened or like, you know, overwhelmed by this sort of prescribed curriculum, it's like, hang in there, you're kind of learning what you have to now so you can learn what you want to 
later, mm-hmm. kind of. Um, there's sort of a balance or trade-off. But what I remember not liking about grad school was that there is sort of this like hierarchy almost like, oh, you're a grad student. You better be just generally better and you can't make mistakes or an undergrad can't outplay you. Well, that's going to happen. So like, can we not create this like kind of rivalry or almost like set us up on a pedestal so that we feel more pressure and scrutinized that if I am not as competent at something or do make a mistake that I don't feel like fall so far. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it was kind of a weird dichotomy between having this freedom to explore, but also feeling the need to like prove myself. That's from what, 10 plus years ago. I hope hope has changed. Has it changed? I think we're still in process. It's just all around. (laughs) You were working, you said in, in the office for a long, it was there, right? That you were doing, that was like kind of a day job aspect. Yeah. Right? At Boston Conservatory. Yeah. Did you kind of like enjoy just not have it like being, having this being kind of like a set thing that you could kind of ping pong around as much as you needed to, because you had something that was kind of secure. I don't know how much it paid, but you know. Yeah. I mean, I think this happens to a lot of people after grad school or undergrad, whether you go to grad school or not. Yeah. And then at some point you get some day job and you realize, oh, I could just do this and, you know, make enough money, cover all my expenses and even save um, that it kind of conflicted with this concept that we're taught in music school to like say yes to every gig because this is going to be your livelihood. Yeah. Um, Or this leads to something else. (laughs) Right. It It could lead to something else. You say yes now, and then you're, that's going to lead to someone else who's going to say yes for even more. And then that's going to lead to blah. Like that definitely still happens, but I felt, I remember feeling a little bit of a, I mean, shame may be too strong a word, but some sense of imposter syndrome. Sure. Like where, okay, I have two degrees in music, but my money's coming from a day job, from an office nine to five. And that's where most of my money's coming from. Um, I had friends who I was, you know, I mean, classmates with, we graduated together mm-hmm. and they're gigging with all these orchestras, you know, I mean, they're piecing this together, right. but they're making a living somehow. I mean, I don't know the details of the numbers, but right. on paper, they're living a life as a freelance musician. And on paper, I am an office person who plays on the side. Yeah. And I felt shame for that. All we can do as individuals is judge our insides against others outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can't possibly know their other people's challenges or, you know, uh, heartbreaks or, or goals. That I at some point had a conversation with at least a few of these these guys who I'm like, wow, you're playing with BMOP and you're playing, you know, with Handel and Haydn and you're doing all these. Oh, you have this university teaching job. Like, that's so cool. And they're like, you have a retirement plan. Like you, you have, have health insurance. Savings. I was gonna say you health insurance. <laughs> like you have savings. Like, yeah, I just bought my own five octave marimba and play music when I want to. And I was like, oh yeah, I couldn't have done that without this. You know, I yeah. couldn't honestly have bought this condo with my then boyfriend, my now husband, 
you know, without, without this and realizing like, okay, it's really not black and white, right? It's not that you're a musician or you're not, or you make money being creative or being administrator. Like, right. This is not a binary. And I think the more we can like embrace the gray area between the better for all of us, because um, yeah, I would talk to these friends who were doing these great, you know, had these great music gigs and then they would look at me like, wow, I really wish I could just leave the office at five and not have to practice for the next gig, you know, or just right. like the weekend. I was like, oh, right. Okay. I forget. You forget what you have um, yeah. and how that could actually be a means to a different end. There was a point where I thought I was going to, you know, have this day job for a few years, be on the side, working up gigs to the point that their union and they're big enough that I could leave this day job and just continue my music career. Right. And I was driving myself crazy because I'd work nine to five and then leave home, run to rehearsal, load out, get home at like 10 or 11 and then do it all over again. Right. And at some point that tipped too far and I was like, I can't, you know, this was unhealthy and not sustainable. Um, so I kind of resigned myself to just be more of a day job um, focus, but then it allowed me this ability to be really selective about the gigs I took. Yeah, You know, I didn't take something because I had to. I took something because it was interesting or was with the group I liked or people right. I wanted to play with. Yeah, And suddenly I was like, oh, now when I make music, it's actually more meaningful to me. If I make music every day for whatever buck comes my way, I may not be fulfilled. I'm definitely going to be tired. Yeah. And I'll have a little bit more money, but I'm not going to be fulfilled. So it did kind of shift my perspective to say music does not need to be, need to be my full-time job. Right. Music can be my full-time passion, yeah. but that can be different. At some point, I was just like, well, I've got the financial stability to make the music I want to when I want. That also came in line with around the time that I was embracing this more of a cabaret thing, and I could self-produce. Yeah, I could pay the rental fee for this club to put on this experiment of a concert that I wanted to do with my friend that no one has ever heard of before right? and not worry about the risk that that was taking. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, sure. Did I, uh, you know, am I using my two conservatory degrees to their fullest, you know, as a performer? It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that because the fact is that was my path and that brought me here. Yeah. And I'm so happy with what I created and with what I do that I'm like, what's the point in going back and debating that? I used to live a lot in the past, like a lot of regret, but like, Oh, I should have done more. Oh, I should have yeah. taken more advantage of this opportunity or studied more with this teacher or practiced more in grad school. You know, there's mm-hmm. always those what ifs. But the fact is I'm here. Right. I've found what I love doing. And like, I don't regret that. Yeah. Why would I, why would I give that feeling? Why would I give up that positive energy for something on paper? Right. So yeah, there was definitely that shift to realizing what role music has in my life and what my values are because, and now coming full circle to my admissions day job, yeah, yeah, it all comes down to how you define success. Yeah. If your definition of success in studying music is, you know, being a soloist and being toured around the world as a concerto performer or whatever, mm-hmm. And you're living alone in a hotel and absolutely have no social life. Right. And, you know, go do that thing. But if your definition of success is 
music being a central part of your life and you have people around you that you're close with and enjoy collaborating with, like then your success. Yeah. It's, it's really up to each, each person to define it and not up to an institution or an industry to define it for you. Really well said. Uh, I'm teaching, it's kind of, it's fascinating because I'm teaching a career development for musicians class this Mm. semester, uh, which is brand new. And one of the things we, we had a, um, a guy named, uh, Robert, shoot, I can't remember his last name now, but he's, uh, he, he, he's known as the drunken tenor. And, um, and he was so, he was such a good, he was so awesome as a, as a speaker and storyteller. And one of the things he talked about was that he for like 20 years was an opera, you know, did opera and like performed in that venue for a long period of time, just as a freelancer. And basically said, you know, the thing that they don't tell you is that you, you is the hotel part. You're like, is that, and he's like, is that there, how many times was I in a different country and I'm in a hotel and I know nobody and I don't speak the language. He's like, that gets really old actually after a while. Yes. I, so I, we used to travel a lot for my admissions job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds very glamorous. I would fly around the world. I'd been to Taipei, to Seoul, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Chengdu, mm-hmm. Ecuador. I was in Quito. I was in Valencia, Spain, all over the country. Yeah. Traveling to these amazing places for like 24 hours. Yeah. Staying in a hotel, getting up, doing high school visits, info sessions, presentations, hosting audition days, you know, sometimes I get to see the sites or see the country, but this travel living out of a suitcase for like three weeks, you know, I wouldn't see my husband or my dog or my cat, but I'm traveling and I'm seeing the world. And, and I, I would get to, to, um, slip in some, um, like master classes I would offer to the, you know, Taipei national university of the arts, like, Hey, I'm in town. Do you want me to show you what I do and they'd be like great come on in and so I'd get a little bit of musical um, engagement there but so much of it was just this logistical part that you're alone for and I mean that that takes a toll and there has to be something else that balances that out right that, that may be the performing part if you're performing these roles or in these places that you're just so happy to do and it's so fulfilling yeah. that the hotel and the travel and the exhaustion you know doesn't over out outshine that yeah then great but for the rest of us you burn out and that's what happened with um i mean with me i mm-hmm. worked there for 11 years and i got tired of the travel and the being away and not being able to make music um, it timed it, it was in line with, uh, my husband and his burning out from being a high school band director for so long yeah. that both of us were kind of like, you know what, I'd love to work from home. What if our work was our home? You know, then the idea of running it in where our commute is like going up and down stairs was suddenly beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's just ironic that we made that shift at the same time that everyone else was forced to work from home because the pandemic was settling in. Right. Um, anyway, yeah, weird, weird circle. All right. Uh, finish up with random ask questions. Awesome. <laughs> uh, first question is, uh, what's an issue in 
e, uh, percussion performance or percussion education something that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Oh, gosh. What a thoughtful thing. Okay. This feels maybe outdated. I hope this is outdated, but it's probably not. Is kind of like the percussion culture has a lot of male-dominated toxic masculinity to it. Yeah. There's a lot of that. And, and it's in the culture of the you know percussion studios in school, um, a lot of times in sections. Granted, I say I hope it's outdated because I haven't been in school for like sure. 10, well, no, 2009 for, yeah. I mean, a lot of years so that I hope that that is changing. But I would get really frustrated by that because I feel like it was limiting. Obviously, um, there's a lot of work to be done in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and percussion just kind of in the front lines of being a notoriously undiverse place. Right. And so, I mean, I know that that impacts people a lot of different ways. And yes, I am a white cisgender man. I am also a gay person. And that intersection is really hard. And I wish that when I was in school, I didn't feel like I had to hide or, or blend in. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of times, you know, I mean, it's, it's college, it's, it's high school. There's this sense of wanting to blend in and not stand out. Anything right. that you did that was weird or different, you hid. And I wish that I could have told myself then, no, that weird thing that you do, that singing, that show tune loving, you know, whatever part of you that you're afraid of, yeah. that's going to be your favorite part when mm -hmm. you grow up. And I hated that at the time I felt like I was in a really, you know, hyper-masculine place where that wasn't cool. That wasn't celebrated. And I had to butch up. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I had to, you know, be one of the guys. And I resented that. So I, I wonder how I would have, you know, if I may sooner have developed or discovered my, you know, my real passions, if the percussion community has, was more open-minded mm -hmm. and more interested in diversity of voices and diversity of, you know, creativity and all that. I say that because I know there's progress. And I know there's change being made. I mean, PAS is doing a lot of work on yeah. the diversity inclusion front. I know, especially with um, percussion and voice, there's a lot more, well, literally voices being brought to the table. And I love that. Yeah. Um, it's just funny when, yeah, when I remember those feelings or even would like see it, I'm not afraid to call it out now because yeah. I don't really have any, there's no risk of blowback or professional damage or whatever. I'm kind of like, no, I can just be honest and be me. Right. Um, but at the time when I was a student or feeling part of this, I was like, wow, this, this is not where it's at. This is not uh, sustainable for, for anyone involved. Funny, it, was, it relates to what I, what I was going to ask the next thing, um, which is about being uh, someone in, in percussion who's also LGBTQIA plus and and also I, but I, I wanted I want you to also tie this in a little bit with your drum core years, because that's another place where that culture tends to be as, as I've had other people refer to as bro cushion or something like that. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> 
I think it's Alexis. Bro. I think it's Alexis Lamb, uh, the the composer per- performer, as the one who said that to me on the podcast. I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a good way to say it." Totally, that totally exists. Yeah, Pro- I mean, still does. I I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I and thank you for yeah for bringing this up because, um, like I was saying, uh, unrelated but related we are, this is not a black and white world. You are not this or that. Like we all live in this gray area. Yeah. There is such an intersection of our identities. And I think I'm kind of waking up even more to it. The intersectionality of me as a queer person and me as a musician and me as a, as an innkeeper, right. These things I used to really hide and keep separate. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the idea of coming out, um, as a gay person is one thing. The idea of coming out as someone who likes show tunes when you're in school studying classical music, that also feels taboo. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like my my tagline for my early performances was come out of the musical closet or I would come out of the musical closet and like share, yeah, yeah I love singing Whitney Houston. Uh Let's do some Whitney Houston marimba covers. Why not? Yeah. You know, except I'm going to like underscore it with some like well-tempered clavier ostinato thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why not combine these things? Because that's like creative and new. But at the time I felt I couldn't come out of any of those closets. There's a multi-layer of of the closet. And one of those is being interested in musical theater if you're a, particularly if you're a voice voice person that's like a that's a whole other dichotomy yeah. the, the, yeah, the opera silly. versus the, <laughs> the musical theater s- very silly um like uh what do you call it like barriers between Sil- like the silos i think you had said <laughs> silos absolutely yeah. it's so funny how much of the arts are silo because that i really feel like that only exists in school in like real life, that those don't exist. Yeah. I mean, if you want to study music, it's like, oh, well, to study music, you are going to study classical, you know, Western European composers. You know, it, it definitely has a hierarchical, um, I mean, e- even has origins of white supremacy in this. Yeah. We're only we're only studying, you know, white classical music, um, right. and we're only um validating this style if you're outside of that style oh well that's that's not legitimate i definitely felt that if i was singing show tunes or just playing something that wasn't classical Mm -hmm. you know if i wasn't working on merlin or freaking i mean fill in the blank you know zivkovich or something (laughs) if it wasn't that then like what was i doing i was just like wasting my time you know working on this leonard bernstein transcription or something Um, like that felt really uh, unfortunate and um it's sort of it's it's self self-preserving i mean the yeah. same idea yeah. that oh this is high art high art i read this somewhere i forget who is saying this high art is a is a bad metaphor i mean it suggests it's unattainable or unreachable to all right yeah and it i is think that metaphor yeah i think the world today i mean everyone would agree on paper art should be for all yeah. Music should be accessible to everyone. It should not be something that you strive to reach or can't reach, especially from underrepresented folks who yeah. are not given the same access. But right. the other way around, it's not being validated. So the idea of other styles of music, other composers and, and creators of music and art need to also be validated and taught and 
celebrated on the same platform. Yeah. Um, it's such a complicated thing that I think can only move forward if we like acknowledge it, acknowledge the intersection of these things. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, when I was, I remember my, I, I decided for myself, I don't even know if this was so much said to me, but I thought, okay, my percussion life lives here. In percussion, I am like a straight acting dude who plays orchestral music and sometimes new music. Um, on the weekends, I sing karaoke um, at gay bars. And then like in my off time, I like may go see a Broadway show, but those all live in different places. And God forbid someone see you in the other place doing the other thing. <laughs> now, like, you know, yeah. these corners as I'm seeing them now, I'm like, no, put them all in the same place. Right. Like, I love playing percussion and I love singing and I'm going to do show tunes. And like, I couldn't have done any of those things without the other, that the more we encourage and allow this intersectionality of our interests and identities, Mm -hmm. the better for everybody. Because I feel like everyone has their own little closets that they're afraid to admit or come out of that. If we all just came out of our closet, we might find we have a lot more in common and we'll do some pretty creative new things. What was the situation like when you were in drum corps? Was that just like, you put that away? Cause yeah. how was that interaction in the drum corps world? It's so funny because I mean, I'm going to answer your question in a roundabout way. Okay. Fine. I remember, you know, reading or just seeing movies or TV shows from the past, from, you know, the fifties or the sixties or different generations. And you see people behaving in such rigid uh, gender roles or character types, you know, and you'd see that and you kind of look at it with distance and you think that's so absurd. How could people act that way? Yeah. Well, then I remember my time in drum corps and it is so rigid. These, these roles and these stereotypes are so prominent. I mean, I was in, in um, Blue Devils uh, from 2003, four and five. And like, you know, the drum line was for the straight dudes. I think they made history because there was a girl in the bass line. And then, you know, the girls and the gay dudes were in the pit. I mean, if you were straight in the pit, that was rare. I don't know why. I don't think maybe that's not across the country, but at least in, you know, the Concord Blue Devils, uh, yeah. that seemed to be the, the way of things. And, you know, the only other gay guys were in the color guard. And so there was these really, you know, pretty rigid lines that looking back at, I go like, how was that? Like, how is that real? How was that acceptable? Right. I know things have changed. I mean, yeah. I think recently Blue Devils, their their center um, snare drummer was a, a woman. Um, and there's definitely more just gender diversity in in across percussion, but I hope across the, the drum corps environment. But I definitely felt, you know, living that stereotype and it definitely gets reinforced. Um, yeah. I mean, I will be honest, my time in drum corps was challenging for so many reasons, but it kind of brought to a head this like pressure cooker that you're put under this pressure cooker to, you know, not miss a note. You know, you you don't want to be the tick. You don't be the tick that the judge calls out. You don't want to be any of those things. You, you shouldn't be noticed. You should just blend into the ensemble, the whole. And if you stand out, that's a bad thing in drum corps. And it took me a lot of time to like unpack that and realize I do want to stand out and what I do that 
makes you stand out is actually like your best asset. Yeah. So I definitely broke up with the competitive music um, aspect of life. I mean, I taught marching band for high schools, you know, a few years after drum corps. But I think once I moved to East Coast, uh, moved to Boston, I was like, competitive music is an oxymoron. I I can't support it. And it, and it, it did, you know, things to me that I'm still undoing. But what drum corps did give me, um, I don't know if you saw the 2005 Blue Devils show. It was called Dance Derby of the Century. It is. It had a narrator in it. It was the first and last show that the Blue Devils ever had a narrator, and that was me. I had that Britney mic on my face, and I played the same book that everybody else did. It was the most technically challenging thing I've ever done in my life, and it was just sort of dropped on me like, hey, you've done some you know, theater, some drama club experience. Why don't you be our voice? Because they didn't want it to be a character on the show, like yeah. a visual character. Um, and so I had to play the entire book um, while also speaking these lines that were not in time, sometimes during like our fastest runs. Um, and it was ex- extremely difficult. I was under such a tight, um, what do you call it? Microscope. Yeah. Because I mean, my voice was amplified across the football field. If I missed a word or if I breathed too sharply, I'd get a note. Yeah. Um, not to mention if I played a wrong note. But guess what? That was the origin of me speaking and playing, singing and playing, that gave me some serious technical, you know, coordination that without that really challenging experience, I would not be singing and playing like I am today. So, you know, it's, it's hard, but it's also what shapes you. Is it 30 or 40 times a day that you have to tell people how to spell your last name? Oh, good question. Gosh, I mean, anytime I'm like booking anything or yeah, telling someone my email over the phone, I always pause and go C A L H O O N. <laughs> so that people go, wait, what? Not O U N? And I say, yeah, because that's how it's pronounced. You say Calhoun, not Calhoun. Oh, there you go. You know, just a little bit of like pronunciation basics. Um, but it also helps distance any association with a a John C. Calhoun, right. who was um, part of the, well, he was on the wrong side of history as far as slavery goes. Yes. And they were like, oh, are you related? Nope, different spelling, different. Yeah. <laughs> and I would not claim. Different. <laughs> but also it works out because I, you know, kind of lucked out with the Gmail addresses way back when I got Brian Calhoun at Gmail. Yeah. And what's funny is that there is another Brian Calhoun who spells it my way, but his email address is Calhoun Brian. And I once got an email from um, a lawyer sending me like confidential documents to the other Brian Calhoun. (laughs) And I had to be like, this is not like, I'm not seeing this. This is not me. Please refer to your. <laughs> oh my goodness! But so that's you know the most amusing part. I think there is a race car driver named Brian Calhoun. O U N, I think. But anyway, it's like if you if you Google my name, I think I'm the top one that comes up. But then there's a few other folks out there with with your spelling. You mean or not? With yes. Spelling. Okay. Like one other with my spelling. Okay. Um, in fact, in grad school, um, yeah, any 
anyone who knew me in grad school, my nickname was the Hoon. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Hoon okay. was my my stage name, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term, because there were um, when I was in grad school, there was another tall Brian. Uh-huh. We both spelled Brian with an I, so yeah. you couldn't say like, "Oh, which Brian? The tall Brian?" No, they're both tall. They're both tall blonde Bryans. So we went by our last names. And his last name was shorter than mine. My Calhoun, they just shortened it to Hoon. They're like, which one? Did you want him or Hoon? And like, all right, the Hoon. So I got this weird kind of kind of a broy last yeah. name. Oh, yeah. um, the Hoon. And, <laughs> yeah. It was it was very affectionate, but it did not last much past grad school. Okay. Sure. <laughs> nice. All right. Some other questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you and if so how did how'd they do it oh my gosh an impression of me yeah um (laughs) actually a friend of mine his name is jared he drunkenly but very skillfully um started singing some of the lyrics to songs that i do a lot and like um we were roommates a few years ago and like if you live with me, you're going to hear me practicing and singing. And so he kind of got to know the songs and like drunkenly, he was like, Oh, I'm going to be your next guest artist on stage and started singing some of these words, but the lyrics, he kind of like connected them. So we referenced three or four different songs by just jumbling the lyrics together. And he's not really a great singer, but he just like nailed this impression. Um, And I wish I could recreate it, but it was just perfect in my memory. And that was pretty good. I mean, it was like, you know, teasing, but also like affectionate. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that's the first one that comes to mind. Nice. I'd be curious or scared to ask my husband to make an impression of me. Sure. Because um, I'm sure he could, but yeah. we're gonna we're gonna leave him out of this. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right. And uh next question is uh what is a skill that you have? That's not at all marketable, but you're an all-time great at. I have a very good Kermit voice. Oh, okay. I I can do Kermit. Granted, I mean, I kind of use it. I do use it when singing because um, I'll do the Rainbow Connection, you know, the Muppet song. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I'll just do it for you. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? What's on the other side? (laughs) That is really good. (laughs) Which, you know, but marketable, I don't really think that's going to be anything I add to my resume. Um, It definitely won't come up in, you know, in keeping or job reviews, but, but it's a fun little parlor trick for, or when I do that song. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you ever use him to sing, let's say, I don't know, I Will Survive or any Jackson 5 songs or something like that? Oh, see, that would be smart if I like did a mashup that had like Kermit singing Beyonce yeah. <laughs> or something like, I'll have to think about food for thought. I will definitely see about mashing up, you know, if I can play Beyonce on Marimba, I might as well have Kermit sing yeah, yeah, sure. up on top or something. Why not? Yeah. Do all the um, do do all the uh, modulations at the end? 
know? Oh yeah, there's five five yes. key changes. When I do it, I cut it down to four because five is just too many. <laughs> it was it a starts in C and ends in E, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's five. Yeah, yeah. or well, there are five keys. Four, I guess, four key changes. Yeah, it starts in one and goes up four. Funny fact or fun fact, um, perhaps I walked down the aisle to Love on Top. Okay. Um, my husband and I got married, and Tom is a trumpet player. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I play uh, the marimba, and so we hired um, uh, two friends of ours to play trumpet and marimba duets. That we, um, you know, told them the songs we wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. One of them was the Rainbow Connection, actually, and yeah. the song we walked down the aisle to was a marimba and trumpet cover. Of love on top, and you know, I don't think they went through maybe one key change because we didn't walk down too far. But um, <laughs> it wasn't that long of an aisle. It was sure. a farm. It was a little orchard. Um, yeah, yeah. But that that moment that the music started because we didn't hear them before. We just trusted them to rehearse and figure it out themselves. Mm-hmm. But the second it started. Tom and I had completely split reactions. I see this crowd of, you know, our friends and family, and I just totally start bawling. I mean, I'm suddenly emotional and losing it, which is funny because Tom is the crier of our relationship. He will cry at the drop of a hat. I don't cry very much at all. But when this started, I started crying, and Tom started laughing because the sound of Beyonce on trumpet and marimba just sounded so absurd to him. Despite that being our choice and it representing yeah. our musical, you know, partnership, he just thought it was funny. So there is this great photo of us right around the the hedge before we walked down our aisle on the farm mm-hmm. um, of me, like ugly face crying and Tom laughing. Nice. Um, that was a pretty good moment. Yeah, that's a frameable picture right there. I hope my my mom does have it framed and i think it's a horrible picture of me but she just thought it was so sweet it was so touching it was yeah, so yeah. touching <laughs> awesome all right what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie my favorite movie is best in show christopher yes. guest yes have you seen this oh yeah it's just got Conviction galore. Yeah. I mean, these these weirdo characters that you'd never think of. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of it's improvised. Of yeah. course, you have Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. So yeah. well before Shit's Creek fame. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they are just golden in this. Um, Jennifer Coolidge, yeah. um, Parker Posey. Gosh, there's just so many memorable. Fred Willard um, saying, which one of these dogs would be a wide receiver? Which one would be a tight end? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's so absurd, but I just love it. I've I yeah. haven't seen that movie in a while, actually, which is strange. But I yeah. I need to go rewatch that because it is it is my favorite, and it is it is great for all of those reasons. Yeah, it's self aware. Yeah. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but right. it's really well made and just it's very convincing. Yeah. Um, so that is just a great movie. I think yeah. my favorite movie, a bad movie. Oh, well, I'll just say I just watched Halloween Kills. Because it was free and it was on, I don't know, streaming, whatever. Yeah. It was like in the front. And I was like in a Halloween mood. I was like, oh, I'm going to watch the latest Halloween um, slasher film. It was terrible. Mm. It it had no through line. It was, it kind of played into that trope of like, everyone's an idiot. Yeah. Like, oh, here's this killer coming at you with a knife. I know I'm going to like run upstairs or like 
lock myself in a bathroom or something stupid that you're like, I can't, I, I don't even care about the character enough to be mad or upset. I'm just like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's gory for the sake of being gory. It is not good at all. And Jamie Lou Curtis, who's like the main you know, star we know of this is barely in the movie. It's not a spoiler to say she's injured and in the hospital and just like ruminating about Michael Myers. The movie finished and I was like, I want an hour and a half of my life back. So gotcha. I don't recommend it. All right. Good to know. <laughs> All right. What is a favorite book? I don't read a lot. I really should, though. But oh, my gosh, what is a book that I have read? I have read books. Don't get me wrong. I'm just suddenly like forgetting what books I've read. I actually really liked The Help. Oh, yeah. I forget who wrote this. But uh, I read this. Catherine Stock. Who's that? Catherine Stock. Oh, okay. I don't know that she's, if I've seen anything else she's written, but that's, that's who wrote that one. Okay. Yes. Oh yes. Catherine Stock. Yeah. So I think I've, I don't remember if I'd seen the movie first and then wanted to read the book or I actually read the book first in anticipation of the movie. And I was just so drawn in. I was so struck and and really pulled into the characters and the way that each character had their own sort of writing or narration style that you knew who was speaking or who yeah. whose point of view you had and i was really yeah just absorbed into it and then seeing the movie was good i think i preferred reading it first but that was kind of like it's unusual for me to be drawn into a book and just like can't put it down and tear through it mm -hmm. so i really like that that's like the thing I can remember reading recently, cool. I I did read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo mm -hmm. and had mixed feelings about it. Mm -hmm. um, there was definitely good advice about just like checking your own privilege and looking inward before speaking and stuff like that. But it also had weird, weird lines that were drawn in a very binary way that I thought was sort of unrealistic or not unrealistic. Um, I don't think the world is black and white. And we talked about this earlier. It's a big gray area. And to set these lines of like, this is okay. And this is not okay. And there's nothing in between. It felt yep. a little bit limiting. And so I was like, hmm, I think there's more out there. I've heard mixed reviews of the book itself. Mm -hmm. um, but that was something else I read recently. Do you have a sports fandom? Um, mm, no. <laughs> I do not sport. You know what my sport is? RuPaul's Drag Race. Nice. I, I like it. See, this, this is an expansive, an expansive view of sports. I appreciate that. So, and I'll say why, because I watch, follow, read about, I mean, I'll read articles and reviews and speculations about mm -hmm. Drag Race, RuPaul's Drag Race, and yeah, yeah. past seasons and future seasons. The, with the same ferocity that I know friends of mine who follow Red Sox or Yankees or whatever yeah. sporty thing that they do, I have zero interest in athletics, like sports at all. Mm -hmm. I've gone to a few games just because that was like a festive thing to do in Boston, yeah. but I do not care or place any value on it. But RuPaul, like if you were to ask me, you know, top three lip syncs uh, performances or queens who had won three challenges, but didn't make it to the final four or like, you know, various stats and things that you people have know it, about no, their favorite. No problem. Players. 
I have that about the the drag queens I I would watch. Um, so even even when, and I will say, as much as I love RuPaul's Drag Race and for what it's done for the queer community yeah. and you know visibility uh, sure. on mainstream television, it's also a very limited view of drag. It is very much so focused on the femme presenting, often cisgender male, you know, transitioning to female. Drag is a much more well-rounded art than that. And RuPaul tends to favor a very particular type of drag. Yeah, yeah. And it's really going on too many seasons. I think they're, this is the middle of 13, season 13, uh-huh. not to mention all the international spinoffs there have been. I'm like, yeah. RuPaul, slow down, sit down, let someone else take the lead. Yeah. Pass the little, you know, bedazzled baton and let someone else run with it. Yeah. Um, because it's getting a little tired. Yeah. But I keep watching just because I have that loyalty to the art and yes. to the show. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But <laughs> we're not expecting that. No, that's awesome. No, I love I love hearing about that. My we were uh locally, it's funny, we had um there's like a, a club that I think sometimes puts on shows here in town and one of them I think was got connected to uh, one of our close friends because uh, she it was her uh, bachelorette party and um, and it, it's my maybe my favorite name of a uh, of it I mean not, not that I've heard every drag name but but it was one of my favorite names because it just makes me laugh every time and it's muffy Beaverhausen. <laughs> Muffy Beaverhausen. I'm like, that is amazing. Yeah. That just rolls off the tongue. I know. Please amazing. welcome to the stage, Muffy Beaverhausen. <laughs> it definitely has a Karen Walker influence. Have you seen Will and Grace? Yes. Karen, Karen Walker's a character who her alter ego is Anastasia Beaverhausen. Yes, that's right. I forgot about that. I think you're definitely referencing, you know, their favorite, one of their favorite divas or icons from the yeah. from the TV. Uh, but that's good. That's a good one. That's a good one. I, one of my favorite names um, uh, is Karen from Finance. <laughs> that's her name, Karen from Finance. Um, I didn't know it was an actual queen. She competed on the Australia um, iteration of RuPaul's Drag Race one season. But just that name. I mean, again, you know, picture you're in a club, people are drinking. And, the announcer says, please welcome to the stage, Karen from Binance. <laughs> right. So it's sort of anticlimactic. It's unexpected, but that's partly why it's such a weird and great name. That's a, that is awesome. <laughs> Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Oh, uh, Japan. I would love to go to Japan. Anywhere in Japan. Um, Osaka, Nagoya, somewhere. I did a lot of travel in more Southern, Eastern um, Asia. I mean, Korea, Taiwan, North and South of China. Um, but Japan has been on my list. It just wasn't part of my uh, recruitment trip. I wasn't on that territory, so I didn't get to go. Yeah. And of course, it would, you know, there's it, when you're traveling, if you're paying for it, well, when you're not paying for it, sure, go yeah. wherever you can, but right. when you're paying for it, it limits your options, but uh, both my husband and I are both very interested in visiting Japan for a few reasons. Um, obviously, there's a lot of marimba culture and history there. Sure. Um, and I mean, I also love sushi. That's sort of a 
just <laughs> superficial I mean, right. reason to go. But I also have some very dear friends who I got very close with in, in college and grad school uh, who are from there, not maybe not currently living, but um, there. Uh, but I just have always had an affection um, for the country and the people I've met from there. So I hope that when things slow down and the borders are open and it's healthy and safe to travel and we can afford it to make a trip uh, to Japan. Your biggest kitchen mess up. Oh God. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) I am not a cook. Um, My husband, bless him, is and bakes and does all the, you know, scones and quiches at the inn and stuff. Um, I can try to follow a recipe, but no, the biggest mess up was was absolutely stupid. I was baking a pizza. Mm -hmm. How do you mess up baking a pizza? Well, when it's done, you know, you push the like slider, the tray underneath the pizza. Yeah. Well, I didn't get it under it. I just pushed the pizza back to the back of the oven and it just splattered on the back half. You know, it's hot, it's wet, and it just sticks to the back of the oven. I can't recover it. When I pull (laughs) it back, all the cheese and toppings have slid off and it's just this like hot tomato sauce on bread and all the pepperoni and cheese. My roommates at the time, Nina and Jeremy will remember this. I think Nina was there when that moment happened. She was like, Brian, how did you mess up a pizza? Right. Like you literally put it in and it heats up and then you take it out. But I butchered it and had to clean that oven for like, yeah, hours after once it cooled down and I could, you know, chip that stuff away. Yeah. And you were starving too. Let's talk about the fact you're hungry and doing that. I was like, I don't even remember what I did. I mean, if I just ate the like, you know, naked pizza out of just frustration and sadness and then once it cooled then I started cleaning I don't remember that was so sad and I wasn't even it wasn't even like I was in college or something I mean I was like 27 years old I think (laughs) I am an adult I should know how to do this but right did not do well then didn't didn't happen oh that's hilarious what is a and I in this could be something obscure um, culturally or something like that. But if you meet someone and they say, Hey, I like blank, whatever that is. And you immediately are like, we're good. What's that for you? Mm. Mm. And don't say drag race since you've already, since you've already said it. Well, yeah, I mean, that'd be one thing, but that's a wide gamut. Um, let's see. So if someone just like mentioned something, you're like, Oh, I I hear you. We're in the same page. Yeah. Actually, the first thing that comes to mind is a local thing. Yeah. Sure. Um, so Provincetown is, you know, a tourist destination and it's most popular in the summer because it's beautiful out and the ferry is running and it's easy to get to and it's, you know, pools and beaches and outdoor parties and stuff. Um, but it is also crowded and overwhelming and, you know, insane. So when someone says to me, um, you know, I like Provincetown in the off season. I'm like, oh, you're my people. You're my people. I'm not like a big crowd, big party kind of person. Yeah. You know, sure. I like, you know, I'll put on a show and have an audience, but after that, I want the audience to disperse. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be in this 
um, crowded club where you can barely move trying to, you know, get to a seat or a, the bar for a drink. Um, I don't love that density. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when someone's like, yeah, I really love this town. Like now when it's chill, but still beautiful and not too crowded. And I'm like, this is more my pace. And I think in my older years, I don't know what to call this. I mean, I'm almost 37, my mid to late 30s. Um, I find I kind of appreciate the quieter, slower pace. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's that's my that's what first came to mind. That's great. I like it. Or second, when someone knows what a marimba is. Sure. Oh yeah. Like if a guest sees a marimba in the, in the it's like, is that a marimba? Oh my gosh, I love it. And I'm like, you know what it is? Yes. <laughs> Bless true. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. I'm with you on that, that second one, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. This may be the funniest. Or just sort of a uh, a funny thing that I think could happen to anyone. And it happened to me. Um, so I'm packing up. This is a few years ago. Um, and packing up for a show at the Club Cafe in Boston, which is where I do my uh, marimba cabarets. In fact, I'll be doing one in a few weeks. Well, whenever this airs, I'm doing one on November 21st, Sunday at two o'clock in Boston. If anyone is listening, is interested. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have to pack up a lot of stuff. I have to pack up the marimba. I have to pack up um, change of clothes. I usually have my big glittery heels that I put on for one number. They're my one song shoe. And um, I'll do, you know, a few different things just to bring along with me, like tape or uh, just whatever that you might need to like hang a sign and stuff like that. Anyway, um, I remember this show was really busy because we had like three different guest artists. We had to have, a, you know, tech rehearsal, sound check, quick rehearsal with each of these guests and all these things were spinning around. Suddenly it's like, I don't know, 6.30, the doors are going to open and I go, okay, I'm going to go change. And I realized I didn't bring, I didn't bring pants. <laughs> I had these short shorts because it was kind of hot. It was almost summer and I was moving around a lot. So I had these short light blue shorts that I was wearing throughout just because I forgot to bring pants. So I have no option. The show starts at seven. I wasn't going to like run home or borrow. I'm six and a half feet tall. No one has 36 inseam pants that I could wear, like trade with them. So I could ask a friend. So I had to go and do my show in these short blue teal shorts. And, you know, in, in theater, if you can't hide it, you flaunt it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just had to walk out there and, you know, shortly after the beginning, just tell everybody what I'd forgotten. I forgot my pants. And then the, the term show shorts was dubbed and it became a thing for the night <laughs> throughout the night. Someone would yell show shorts or show shorts. I don't know why it like caught on, but thankfully it did. And there's a picture of me like sitting on the stool and it's like, well, you can remember everything else for yeah. everyone else but your own pants you can forget yeah that was probably the weirdest thing all right and brian last question uh one piece of art could be music movies books podcasts youtube clips theater visual art poetry anything like that uh that has impacted you the most recently two pieces in particular okay. but they're actually both by fred hirsch 
Do you know Fred Hirsch? He's a jazz pianist based in New York City, and he has created two magnificent works of uh, music, but they sort of border um, theater or sort of song cycle-esque. Um, there are two things. One, he did a setting of a lot of the um, poems from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Okay. Um, he, he wrote these songs for Kurt Elling and mm-hmm. the woman, I forgot her name. Yeah. Oh no, I can't remember the singer, but I'm, I'm more familiar with Kurt Elling before he did, did this. So I knew him and then heard about this through Kurt. Um, there are just these gorgeous settings of this text and these really uplifting, sort of triumphant, you know, humanity, I mean, it celebrates humanity. I mean, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass celebrate humanity. And then this setting, um, the especially I Celebrate Myself and The Sleepers. Those are two songs especially that I love, the Fred Hirsch Leaves of Grass setting. Fred Hirsch also had this sort of theater piece. Uh, I mean, it was music that he composed. It was music that he had heard when he was in a coma. He was in a coma for like, several months. I forget exactly what. He had a few different medical things happening coincided. And he wrote these things. And I think the piece is called My Coma Dreams. My Coma Dreams. Yeah. And he uh you know wrote music. It had instrumental music. It had some um, vocal solos. And it was recorded, I think it was only performed once and it was recorded and it had sort of a visual, like a, like a movie component to it that he kind of had some visualizations. But I mean, just the fact that this guy could, you know, like if you have a dream, then you start to remember it or write it down, you start to forget it. But these were so burned in his memory that he created an entire show and it was sort of theatrical um, in its, in its setting, but also some really beautiful haunting music. And both of those really stayed with me. Um, yeah, over the years. So Fred Hirsch, way to go. All right, Brian, we are done. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. This is such a pleasure. And I love your questions. I, oh. I'm definitely a, a first of many um, first time I've ever I've been asked some of these questions. And I love thinking outside the box. So thank yeah. you. What an enormous amount of fun getting to chat with Brian. As I should have mentioned, I did get to hang out with him a bit at PASIC in person in and around those few days. So it was great to connect there. I look forward to hearing more about his future marimba and imkeeping exploits as they happen. This week's rave is the 2020 concert film David Byrne's American Utopia, directed by Spike Lee and currently streaming on HBO Max. The film is an account of the 2019 Broadway production of the same name from which this film is based, which features performances of selections from David Byrne's solo career, along with many from his days as part of the Talking Heads. The conception of this stage show was a focus on the human performer, Byrne makes this all apparent by having the music for the show performed outside of a plugged-in, standing-still aspect. So all of the musical parts, percussion, guitars, keyboards, voice, dance, are either carried or worn by the performers who are doing the singing and dancing. It's brilliantly done, 
accentuated even more so by the choreography of Annie B. Parsons, who put marching harnesses on all of the performers so they could move around with instruments across the stage while doing the performing. And the results are truly incredible. David Byrne's voice is still excellent. His range and movement in his singing and performing are still top-notch. The rest of the musicians are outstanding. Bobby Wooten and Angie Swan are playing bass and guitar, respectively, and they really made it look easy. Carl Mansfield was the band leader and playing keyboards. He did tremendously. Tendai Kumba and Chris Giarmo sung and danced throughout, and their movements were synchronized and tight. And the percussion spread out across Jacqueline Acevedo, Gustavo Didalva, Daniel Friedman, Tim Kuyper, Mauro Wefosco, and Stefan San Juan fit perfectly into the whole scheme. This makes sense as David Burns long been influenced by percussion music from Africa, the Caribbean, and South America. And it's a good note to make sure to mention Spike Lee's hand in all of this. As great as his oeuvre is in the fictional film category with titles like Do the Right Thing, Black Klansman, Malcolm X, Inside Man, and many others. He may be even better as a documentary and music filmmaker. Those credits include Four Little Girls, When the Levees Broke, The Original Kings of Comedy, The Concert for New York City, Bad 25, and my favorite of the bunch, Michael Jackson's journey from Motown to Off the Wall. He found an inventive way to shoot American Utopia, focusing not only on up-close and overhead shots, but moving around frequently and putting you inside the performance. It's brilliant work all around by brilliant musicians and filmmakers. Make sure to catch David Byrne's American Utopia, now streaming. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. Show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.